Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all up to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply. good it's i mean it's a beautiful day it's not a day for a woolen coat and leather shorts it turns out but um, it's so nice to see you all and um, this is a, a live recording look it's how still. gendered it is yes. oh, there's, we're one chap right there where, where is he but oh all, hiya but all like the tech people <laughs> are blokes and all of the listeners are women and you <laughs> well done sir Thank you all so much for being here. Um, and Minnie, I'm going to just get started, yeah, if yeah, that's yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2022 and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Um, hello and welcome to today's live episode of Bookshelfie. For this very special episode, we're in Bedford Square Gardens in London with our lovely audience who I think, if I say, can you give me a whoop, they will. <laughs> that is them. Thank you very much. And I am joined by actor, author and singer, Minnie Driver. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Minnie is best known for her lead roles in Circle of Friends and Goodwill Hunting, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She's also played roles in many TV series, including Will and Grace, Speechless, and Modern Love. More recently, she played Queen Beatrice in Amazon's adaptation of Cinderella. Minnie has not one, not two, but three studio albums and hosts her own podcast series, Minnie Questions. She has her own production company and has just published a poignant new memoir called Managing Expectations. How she fits it all in, I have no idea, but I really, really appreciate you being here with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Minnie, are you a big reader? Do you manage to fit the time in to get lost in books? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I always, I always have, actually. I mean, there was a big chunk of my life where all I was really reading was scripts and there was no time to read uh, books. But, um, but, you know, it's, it's funny, it's seasonal, it's an ongoing, it's a lifetime romance with, a, with mm -hmm. books. And sometimes you break up. Which books have you broken up with? Which genres? Well, I've mostly broken up with authors. Right. And I'm just... How? Dare you! <laughs> I hate this. But th but then you end up forgiving them with another book. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but I think it's quite funny to be. You know, what I hate more than anything in the whole world that I will call out are uh, pregnancy books. Right. Uh, I actually broke a window with what to expect when you're expecting. With I, the physical I smashed book. my window. I threw it out the window, and the window was shut. And it is such nonsense. Um, 
you just need to talk to women who've had children. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. So um, I've, I've, I broke up and stayed broken up with pregnancy books. And I'm glad that you've told me that. I'm not going <laughs> to even pick it up. Don't even bother. Not getting into a relationship with one. So which genres do you gravitate towards? What, what do they bring you? I do. I mean, I love fiction. Mm. I really, I really, uh, I have always been, I think when I was very young and I used to, you know, I started out reading Julie Cooper and thought (laughs) that that was the most saucy, romantic, amazing thing. And then my mother saw me reading it and she was like, oh, if you like Julie Cooper, you will, you will like Jane Austen. And I was like, I do not see the equivalency. Mm. But she was completely right. There was, love has always um, sucked me into its centrifuge. Um, and I love female voices in literature. I really do. Um, I, remember, I remember taking... Um, I remember taking a George Eliot book up to my teacher and going, this is a woman you know. <laughs> 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 and having a whole... Uh, I've had a romance, I think, my whole life with, with the voices of female writers. I actually remember having a very similar experience with Harper Lee. Mm. And I think I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was very young, about eight years old, well before it was on the GCSE syllabus, but being absolutely mind-blown that Harper was a woman, because I actually thought it was a man's name, and then telling my teacher, this is a woman, do you believe it? And she was like, why are you reading it? And then my mum's giving it to me. But you said okay. before that you didn't necessarily have the time to read when you're reading scripts, but is there a sensation still, although your job is to bring that character alive, to bring that writing alive, do you still enjoy the reading of a script? Oh, yeah, I do, but only if the writing's good. Okay. Um, it, really is, um, it really is appalling reading a bad script. <laughs> there are so many... <laughs> But it's also when you already know that there's huge amounts of money attached to it and that this thing is actually going to get made and it mm. is galling sometimes um, at how uh, lazy writing can be in script writing. And then when you read something that is beautifully crafted where the stage directions that will never be... They'll never be... They'll be seen, but they will have been metabolised by a director. When those, the prose is as beautiful in the stage direction as the dialogue you know it's really good. Well, we're going to talk about the writing that you do love, that you do think is beautiful, that you do think is impactful and has been on you for many reasons. Um, And we'll start with your first bookshelfy book, which is The House of Spirits by Isabel Allende. Mm. This book follows three generations of a family living in an unnamed Latin American country and focuses on Clara del Valle, who, as a girl, when she was young, discovers she can read fortunes and make objects move. Following the mysterious death of her sister, Rosa the Beautiful, Clara is mute for nine years. When she breaks her silence, it is to announce that she will be married soon to the volatile landowner Esteban. It's an epic novel of secret loves and violent revolution. And Minnie, you read this when you were about 15, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this blew my mind. Yeah, Isabel Allende, like her whole... um, You know, there was this... I was was super sort of revolutionary political, you know, 
Like I've, I had a poster of Che Guevara up on my Me wall too. and fancied him. That's the first person I fancied yeah. alongside Bart Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. I mean, it is. It is. You know, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I honestly, and when I knew, you know, like her, her father was the president of Chile, right? That, yeah. And he, that, and you read about what she experienced, and then this woman who drew magic. Like the magic, the deep, that deep female magic that is, well, I mean, I, I felt that as, strong, as strongly as I felt all these sort of political revolutionary leanings. I felt that deep magic, that whatever, whatever that ancient female uh, connection is. And there it was reflected in this incredible writing that was also a soap opera, so it kind of spoke yeah. to my EastEnders um, to my, the East Enders part of my 15-year-old brain. It was this beautiful generational soap opera, but with, you know, I mean, Esteban is like a, a dreadful rapist. Yes. And yet there is, the way that she writes him, it's not that you forgive him or you feel that she's an apologist, but she contextualizes like male aggression in a way that I sort of, I felt like she, she understood how we as women have to expand to accommodate these really difficult things and how we have to do it generationally and how there's this weirdly uh, like epigenetic passing down of trauma that women then turn into like alchemists into other things i i love her like she it, it blew my mind like mm -hmm. she these these are the writers that made me want to be a, a, an actor as well there is something so evocative about the way she writes and it, it's vivid and it fizzes off the page in a way that at 15, you, you just want to, you just want to devour, you just want to capture mm. everything. And if she was speaking to you with this sort of revolutionary spirit, were you a revolutionary child? Were you at 15 and mobilized? Were you seeing injustice and wanting to do something about it? Uh, I was definitely seeing injustice. I was definitely doing, I went to a very, socially active, um, I mean, a, a school that was, you know, had a lot of activism around it. I right. was in, in the book that I wrote, um, I wrote about this um, protest musical that we wrote because they were gonna build a road through our school. And so the teachers thought the best response would be a protest musical. Great, and I love that. Very, um, <laughs> they're gonna cut down this tree and I sang the solo in the musical which is called They Said It Was My Tree, um, about trying to save this tree. I mean, yes. I, I mean, while I'm not really... I'm trying to create equivalency between me and, you know, the, Ch the fall of the Chilean government but <laughs> up a tree, but there isn't any, really. But suffice it to say that, yes, um, I spoke out about injustice and learnt really early on that you get hammered for doing that. Um, particularly when you're young, and maybe even more specifically if you're a woman, because I also had seen that, that women speaking up was, um, really seemed to piss men off. Yeah, and it's baffling, because I think at that age, your moral compass is far clearer. Definitely. You, you don't think, well, there are reasons we have to do certain things just to get by. You think, well, that's wrong and that's right. Yeah. That's, that's not okay. I think there's... Yeah, I really resisted the, the kind of binary notion of right and wrong mm. and men and women whilst also really wanting to kind of 
have a side and fight for it. Yeah. I mean, it was quite conflicted, but that's also being 15. And books, I, I, I think it was so satisfying, and particularly with House of the Spirits. It's satisfying because the female spirit is triumphant yes. in that book. And I felt like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like books that are a bummer at the end. <laughs> Is that really bad to say? No, not at all. Sometimes we need that uplifting because we or have the actual world as well to deal with. Or at least just that, that ends with an aperture yeah. through which you can sort of find a way. But the kind of sort of closed loop of... I don't, I don't like closed loops. Although it's not strictly autobiographical, um, the events in this novel, they are an exaggerated representation of real events mm. um, that are part of Allende's personal history. Is this something that inspired you when it came to writing your own memoir? Well, not this, not this book, actually. Not this book particularly. But, but the spirit of... Because I suppose that really, that's what I'm thinking about now, is what does autobiographical fiction look like? Mm. Because... I think my book was was far more like this actually happened. Like I write about sitting up this tree in a you know forced seven gale, singing a song on Nationwide, trying to save the squirrels. That's and that's that just actually the thing, that's the truth. That actually happened. Spitting straight facts. <laughs> She's spitting facts. Yeah. So it was. Um, but but to write with but to write connected to. Um, your version of, of truth or that the truth that you want to share. Yeah, that for sure is something that um, I explored alongside Isabel Allende in my head. The exploration of generations um, of a family, I find absolutely fascinating. Are you ever curious to know what your family was like generations down? Which, you know, it's funny. I did this genealogy show called Who Do You Think You Are? Yes. And I... Um, you give them like a bunch of your information and then the producers are like um, really strict and they're like, most people's lives are incredibly boring and we probably <laughs> won't be making a show out of all of your stories just to manage your own expectations. And I was like, all right, fine. Um, and they were like, we will furnish you with whatever we find, even if it is boring. And I was like, great. So three months later, they come back and they're like, oh, it turns out there is a show. And then you go, well, what is it? And they go, no, no, you're going to find it all out on camera. So then they literally send you a thing going, can you just show up at Waterloo Station at 5 p.m. on Thursday? And then from then on, everything is sort of revealed on camera. And if it, I was so annoyed by the whole thing. I was like, God, this is so ridiculous. And I'm not going to cry. And this is absurd. But it's so legitimate because you're sitting down with historians and you're going through these stories. And I did find out everything I never knew about my father um, and my family and where I'm from. And it turns out I am like I'm the Anglo in Anglo-Saxon. Like there ain't no I. We are my people never left and they never had sex with anybody else. <laughs> they just I'm literally from Tyneside. Every single part of my body I did that 23 and me and it was like yeah you're an angle whereabouts in Tyneside I don't know the side of the time <laughs> <laughs> I don't know no all like Durham yeah. Tyneside that's Newcastle that is where I am from oh, me too. well 
you don't sound like you are. So I couldn't have known that. <laughs> and that's what this is all for. I actually did one of those tests as well, but um, it came back and they said, have you been eating chicken? And it turned out I'd eaten some chicken just before the swab and that's all they got on the test. It was chicken. <laughs> that's fantastic. Did you get the printout where it just said chicken? <laughs> Descendant. To, that's <laughs> <laughs> just quickly what was it like I know you grew up um, between Barbados and London in your early life yeah. how, how was that it was amazing it was really amazing I mean my father had gone to Barbados to basically recover from the second world war you know he flew in the first terrifying air battle of the second world war in 1939 when he was 18 and survived and had crazy PTSD his whole life um, which I didn't realise until I did this documentary wow yeah um, and Barbados was this place of, it was where he was calmest and most um, together in a way. Um, but in the book, like I do tell a pretty, it's a pretty, well, it's very accurate about my dad. And he had, he had a very big temper. And, um, but it was still better in the sunshine mm. than it was in London. They barely know each other, but they all know Jamie Lawrence. They know what he's guilty of and that something must be done. Payday, the top 10 best-selling debut novel by Celia Walden. Clever, compelling and chillingly plausible, says the Daily Mail. A runaway train ride of a thriller, says The Sun. A fast-paced psychological thriller, I adored it. Gillian McAllister, author of That Night. Payday by Celia Walden. Out now in paperback. Today's tale begins when the Smith family sit down to enjoy a film. Suddenly they heard the scariest sound. The Wi-Fi is down. The family were doomed to wait for a film that wouldn't load. <laughs> Save yourself from broadband nightmares. Get BT's unbreakable hybrid broadband backed up by EE, the UK's best network. Search BT hybrid broadband. 88% UK availability. 4G connection takes up to 175 seconds. Best for mobile network performance. Verify at ee.co.uk forward slash claims. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. There are no better friendships than those formed around brilliant books. And since you're listening, we're guessing you love books as much as we do. The Women's Prize has created an exclusive community that gives you a bookish backstage pass, offering surprises and freebies, plus unmissable reading recommendations and book chat from our founder friends, including me, Vic Hope. Search for Women's Prize Friend to become a friend today. We cannot wait to meet you. Let's move on to your second bookshelfy book now, Mini, which is Wise Children by Angela Carter. This magical realist novel was deemed the most bewitching and imaginative work of her career by critics. It follows the lives of two identical twin sisters who claim to be Shakespearean actor Sir Melchior Hazard's and acknowledged children, not his twin brother, Perry, who everyone thinks is their dad. Donna, aged 75, narrates the story in the form of a memoir and reflects on their childhood, gradually revealing all of the family secrets and drama. Um, now, 
I've heard that when you read this book, you felt like Angela Carter had written it just for you. What was it about it that resonated so deeply? You know that it's like a showbiz autobiography, mm. basically. That like Dora Chance was this voice of a of like this beautiful, alive voice of someone who had made it through the gamut of what it is to be an actor. But so much more than that, you know, Angela Carter. It was Angela Carter's voice, like that. Again, I mean, I I was very into the whole. I was very into magic realism. Mm. You know, that was something. I really believed in magic, like actual magic, not like magicians. I really believed that there was, and it was so connected to, to women. And um, I remember when she died, which was um, so devastating to me, because I think, I'd, I feel like I'd, um, she wrote this in, this was the last book that was, that was published before she died, I believe, and I remember, coming into the kitchen and going to my mum, Angela Carter's dead. And my mum said, um, of course she is. She's, she was far too good for here. And it turned out that they'd known each other and they'd been friends and used to go for walks on Hampstead Heath together. And um, then I read everything she'd written. Um, but Wise Children, this... She kind of... She decoded Shakespeare for me in a way, um, or helped me find a way in. Um, and her prose was just so full of light and life. It was never, um, it was never muscular and kind of hard to wade through. She just had this lightness that was so, so beautiful in these characters that I, I mean, I feel like I. You know how characters just kind of sit right here on the periphery and you, in, from all different books. I mean, maybe that sounds mad. Maybe no. none of you are haunted by the characters from books. No, 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 they stay with you. Certain characters she, really do. They sit right there. I like, you know, I visit them yeah. in when I think about them. On the subject of showbiz and Hollywood and acting, I've, I've seen you say that you didn't have the appetite to be a big movie star. What did you mean by this? I mean, it's, it sucks being really, really famous. Like, it's not good for you. It's not good for your soul. There's, there's a, there is a very specific exchange. You, you know, and to withstand it, you have to cull bits of yourself that I just wasn't willing to give up. Or, you know, I went pretty far down that path because I got pretty famous at one point but it it's like a beast that requires fuel that you 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 just don't realize that it's um it's part of yourself that you have to feed the beast with um and the kind of scrutiny and also the fact that you stop you you stop a kind of personal interrogation because you're so busy trying to keep the mantle that people the, the thing that they see alive that you I don't know. I don't, I don't know where you go, but you disappear. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Not knowing where you go, but you do disappear. And upholding something that doesn't even exist. Like it's, it's like it's not real, and yet so many people worship it. Um, but acting and being famous are not the same thing. So why did you want to pursue acting and music as well? Because I love it. Because it's the... Because it, it's... 
it was everything it, it taught me to put all my difficult stuff somewhere useful. You know, that was my own alchemy of the emotion that was unchecked and impossible and seemed to piss off my parents and people around me. But it could be pushed into this it could be put into this crucible and 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 you and and become something else. In Wise Children, um, Donna and Nora, their relationship with their father is virtually non-existent for uh, many years. Um, and you mentioned your dad just before, you're talking about your memoir. Um, you do explore your parents' divorce in your book. What was your relationship like with your dad after your parents split up? Um, it was hard. It was really hard, you know. It was weird. Like, we really um, oscillated between this weird, like my mother had absolutely no money and we you know we barely had an indoor loo in the tiny cottage we lived in and my dad was very very wealthy and we went from these but we'd arrive sort of slightly unwashed and <laughs> ripe <laughs> into his world and then in a way be punished for it and i used to think that was absolutely ridiculous um you know our shoes were scruffed and it was it was really strange um so it was like it was it was hard and it wasn't so much my dad it was more um it was more his wife and um or his girlfriend um and the people around him i don't think he really cared that we were a bit smelly <laughs> i mean you know it was the 70s and like we were smelly weird hippies Your third book, really, is The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy. In the second of her Living Autobiography series, two-time Booker Prize finalist Deborah Levy draws on her own personal experiences, including the end of her marriage and the death of her mother, to explore the subtle erasure of women and reflect on what is involved in breaking away from expected gender roles. Mm. Why did you choose this book? So my, my best friend is a writer called Emma Forrest, um, and Emma gave me, she gave me this book at a moment where I think I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't articulate um, how free I wanted to be because I couldn't really articulate the things that I wanted to be free from. And what I think Deborah Levy does in this book just so exquisitely is explore how you disengage from these things that, like in a fairy tale, um, are like the thorny vines that are holding you um, in some kind of fairy tale cell. How you disengage from those whilst also just living your life, while doing the shopping, whilst raising your children, whilst leaving your husband and moving into a flat, um, dealing with the mortality of your parent dying, and that that bulwark between you and your own mortality being removed. And I just felt so comforted mm -hmm. by. Um, by the the sort of the poetry that she found in in her own life, without it being us uh, self-referential, um, and also Hot Milk, which she w is one of my favourite books of all time, even though it's not on this list. Um, and she was writing that it was about her writing Hot Milk. She was writing the Hot Milk when she was writing The Cost of Living. It's about that process, and I thought that was yeah. interesting. 
It's about things falling apart and also being remade. And what you've described is finding a book at the perfect time when you needed that book. There's nothing more special than those words bringing you solace um, and it sounds like bringing you freedom. Um, you mentioned freedom a few times. You say that you identified the search for freedom in Levy's book. Do you feel like you found freedom from the pressures of Hollywood? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. Like, there's part of me that doesn't want to be free from all of it. Mm. Um, but that's that also seems to be part of our whole... The messy business of being alive is that you you want to disengage but you can't really because to disengage would be to have no conflict and if there was no conflict there wouldn't be anything creative so it's a you know it's a battle i'm prepared to be in forever yeah it's also a book about the constraints of womanhood in our, in our society on a societal level are you someone who pushes against traditional gender roles um i think everyone should do whatever they want yeah I mean, really, genuinely. Um, I definitely have suffered from um, the massive resistance to any kind of a renaissance idea about women. You know, that you, the stay in your lane tribe have always had it in for me. Um, <laughs> because I, I don't understand why you wouldn't do everything, do as many things as you possibly can. If you're a creative being, you make stuff. I make music and films and television and all kinds of stuff but um there's definitely resistance to that but again you know that is for sure a battle i'm prepared to keep on fighting yeah levy also as we mentioned there um talks about the loss of her mother and you sadly uh, lost your own mother not that long ago was there solace to be found on the pages of this book for you in dealing with that yeah i mean it is weird like there's she kind of intimates it in the book, but it's something that I really have explored. And I found it really comforting to go back and read what she'd written, what Deborah Levy had written, because there's this strange resentment that you have for people who still have mothers that no one tells you about mm. when you're grief-stricken in the first year. Um, and, and she allows for all of these hard edges of grief. And I even though mum was still alive when I first read Cost of Living, it was really interesting going back and reading it after she died because I, I just, uh, I got it. It's, it's so much about this, um, this figurehead being removed from your life and suddenly you're weightless, weirdly. There's a quote that I read um, that you, apparently your mum said to you uh, when you're trying to deal with hard times. I've got it here. Um, and it just really like resonated with me, and it, I, I just like saying it, so I'm going to say it. It's just weather. Wait a minute. It will pass. Don't jump off the cliff, you fucking idiot. Just wait. And she's always right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she never wanted me to jump off the cliff. I would literally jump off the cliff and go, I jumped off the cliff! <laughs> and she'd be like, you fucking idiot! <laughs> When did she tell you that? When did she say that to you? She said it all. I mean, she might have probably said it like on her deathbed. Like she said it all through my life. It was the lesson I think she tried to impart the most along with uh, don't have any expectations of anyone ever. But 
she did. She knew she'd created a child who um, who can pull when when a small thing goes awry, can pull everything else that is not working into that small thing, and then say, "You see, everything sucks." Yeah. And she would always be like, "No, it's just that one thing. It's fine. Everything else seems insurmountable when you can when you catastrophize it." But um, yeah, mums, it turns out. They really know. They really did know. Um, is that advice that you've now been able to internalise and, and, and use in your everyday? I mean, you'd think, wouldn't you? <laughs> I wish I could. That's my biggest... That's, that's my... I maybe inappropriately say this to my 13-year-old son. Where I'm like, I just... Like, I wrote a book about these things and I still don't know them. And he was like, well, maybe that's why you wrote the book. <laughs> so you can go and read it and remind yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe that's right. And he was like, but it'd be super weird if I come home and you're like reading your own book <laughs> on the couch. That would be really embarrassing. Has it ever happened? No. <laughs> I don't know. Like you, you, what is it? You know, you, you, I think you, you, it's so much easier to sort of talk about stuff. Yeah. But internalizing and learning it, like, I don't know how you do that. I would have thought I would have learned a shitload more by now. But I know, that, I mean, I think the sort of the best you can do is go, I, I know the stuff that I have a hard time learning and just be okay with that. Yeah. Have you found Biscuiteers yet? Biscuiteers are the original hand-iced biscuit gifting company offering beautiful biscuit collections for any occasion. All of their gorgeous biscuits are lovingly hand-iced, one at a time, by artists at the Ministry of Biscuits in London. One of my absolute favourites is the Butterfly Collection. The biscuits are absolute works of art. They look like perfect hand-painted butterflies and come in the most beautiful tin. You're bound to make an impression with these. And Biscuiteers are offering our lovely listeners 15% off your first order with the code LOVEFICTION. So for the very best present ideas, head to biscuiteers.com now. Your fourth bookshelfy book is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, arguably Austen's most famous novel. It was published anonymously in three volumes. The first edition of this classic romance novel sold out in its first year and has never been out of print since. Brimming with unforgettable characters, playfulness and wit, the book centres around the courtship of Elizabeth Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy, which begins on rocky ground. Um, tell us about this book. Why did it make it onto your list? Well, I think, like I said before, it really was, it went, you know, Enid Blyton, Enid Blyton, Mallory Towers, Mallory Towers, Julie Cooper, Julie Cooper, Jane Austen. Yes. Like, that's how <laughs> it went. And I, um, I couldn't, you know what I couldn't believe when I, I read it when I was 12 or 13? I couldn't believe that nothing had fucking changed. I just was like, poor Jane Austen. Mm. If only she knew that there has just, frankly, been really not that much evolution in the whole dynamics between um, uh, heteronormative relationships between men and women. Austen knows that things aren't great, but she uses wit to great effect in this novel, often to comment on very difficult social truths. Um, and this is something that you do so brilliantly in managing expectations. Did you set out to use humour in this way or was it a coping mechanism that 
you just have to use. I think that. Mm. I think that's true, like, in life, you know. And it's also, it's in a way how you earn the deeper, harder, more dramatic moments of trauma in your life is you you have to you have to answer them with humor because it is funny it is it is funny and terrible like my mother dying was funny and terrible and we talked about that it's she was a great proponent of things being able to be both and i think what jane austen does as well is she shows you how it is always both like it's not i don't think that that darcy and elizabeth went off and had like a super easy, happy, wonderful. And I got that when I was a kid. It was like, you know, it should definitely be hot if it possibly can, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's never going to be easy. And I think that's pretty much every relationship I've ever been in. Um, there is a lot to be um, taken about motherhood as well mm. in this no novel. What did you, I mean, you read it so young, so there's probably not something you were focusing on, or was it? Not really, but I mean, I think it was because my mother was much more focused on her relationship with my stepfather when I read it. So I longed to have a mother who was as sort of in her daughter's lives, who was as. Um, I loved I. I loved that character. I think it was slightly more um, fantastical to me. Mm. My mother was. I had a lot to learn about mothers had a lot to learn about how they are people and how they are really just navigating their own shit and dealing with that. Um, because I had a, you know, an expectation as a child. And conversely, what has motherhood taught you? Um, well, you know, my son, my son is just the best person I've ever met. Yeah. Like, he really is. Like, I would... I'd just be sitting in the back of his class right now if I possibly could, like in a really inappropriate way. Um, it, we figured out parenting together. And all I knew is that I wanted to be really present with him in a way that, and I don't, I don't I'd say this if mum was sitting right here, or I have said it to her, like she came from a generation where it was far more kind of, the kids have to get on with it. Our relationship came much later, our friendship came much later. But Henry and I have a, um, a shorthand and a complicity and we laugh about things so much together that I feel like I've definitely had the childhood that I didn't have with him. So it's terrible, isn't it? To say I've sort of co-opted my child's childhood. That's proper narcissism, by the way. <laughs> it's okay, he'll never hear this. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that. <laughs> Women Alive, at the time that this book was written and set, would often have been forced to marry someone that they didn't want, often forced into situations that they did not choose. And that's not to say that things are different now, as you've said, exactly as you've said. There are so many ways in which we find ourselves compromised, we find ourselves settling when perhaps we prefer not to settle, um, whether in relationships, also in jobs that you, you, know, you, you don't necessarily want, but for financial stability. Have you ever felt pressured to settle or to do something that you just don't want to do, but you have done it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it sounds terrible because it's like, 
it was settling, but it also wasn't. But I stopped making films, which I really love. That there isn't a huge difference between making television and making films, but there is. Mm. And when Henry was born, and I, you know, I didn't have a husband. I didn't have any kind of financial partner. I've never had that ever. And they, I knew I didn't want him to grow up in like a caravan of shooters and trailers and in different countries around the world. I just wanted him to be home playing football and having a nice life. So I started doing television. And I started doing sitcoms specifically because they were the highest paid jobs in, uh, in America, unless you're one of like five actors getting paid 20 million quid a movie. It was the smartest, you know, it was a smart thing to do. And it's not that it, it wasn't creative, but it, it wasn't creative. It was just a, a really great job that I was incredibly grateful for. And it created the protection that I needed to give my son. And I definitely gave away, you know, a decade of, of really exploring stuff mm. creatively. But that's okay, because I'm, I'm getting to do that now. Did you ever feel any resentment at the time? Mm. Only... Only when I'd go and see films of, you know, I'd go and see a Jane Campion film or an Agnes Varda or something and I'd go, Christ, I wish I was making films like this. Or friends of mine were in movies and I'd be like, this is so amazing. But I knew why I was doing it. And I think, I think women are really good at, at making choices that they know are for the greater good and then... Yeah, you have your moments of self-pity and sadness, but you get on with it. Yeah. Um, and there was so much good, and it was so wonderful. And like I said, like Henry had has had the best childhood, and that is so satisfying to me. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say that, that I can do this now, though. So what what yeah. is what is the future looking like? Well, I mean, you know, I've started making movies again. Like I've got four films coming out this year and next that I really love and are amazing. Um, and I'm writing, and I know I'll write things that I'll probably then dramatise and direct. Like, that's the plan. It's just to keep doing stuff, right? You keep trying. You keep... Not even trying. It's really exploring. Yeah. And... If you don't get too attached to what a barometer of success is, but you can carry on paying the mortgage, then I think you're sort of up. Your fifth and final bookshelf book this week, which is The Wall Creeper mm. by Nell Zink. A wild and unusual book. The plot follows the disconnected relationship between Tiffany and her husband, Stephen, who is a passionate bird watcher. When Stephen, in Tiffany's words, swerved, hit the rock and occasioned the miscarriage, Stephen is more concerned about the bird, a wall creeper, that he hits. They take the bird home, they nurse it back to health, and it awakens an obsession with environmental activism in them both, perhaps the only thing holding their uneasy marriage together. Tell us about when you read this and why you picked it today. I, I, I just can't recommend Nell Zink enough to everybody she's um she's one of my friends now because i read her book it was given to me um you know by someone i came to not love but it was really interesting that he gave me this book and i thought it was code and it was <laughs> um and i reached out to now on 
social media and we got in touch and we've become friends and she's one of the wildest, most brilliant minds and people. But this, this book, it sort of spoke to what I always was terrified was true, that relationships with men are so fragile and that we are, we are constantly being the emotional grout to keep things together. Um, and how also we distract ourselves from what is fractured and difficult in relationships by kind of shared obsessions. Mm. And in this book, this it is so beautiful. It is so much, again, about freedom and like the symbolism of the bird, of the wall creeper. But Nell has this incredible uh, knowledge about biodiversity on the planet. And she's utterly brilliant um, as an environmentalist. But also how she uses all of that so delicately, symbolically, um, uh, in her prose about relationships. And is deeply funny. And deeply, deeply, de I think that's what is common in all of these books, how, how brilliantly humorous all these women are, because they have to be. And yeah. that humor is ultimately what saves them from the desolation of certain aspects of life and relationships. Yeah, it's dry, it's dry and also beautiful and poetic at the same time in this exploration of um, of nature and mm -hmm. also of being human which are essentially one and the same and it's you know it's wild this book um literary literally and figuratively and makes you pay attention to life um how do you stay awake to the joys of life and nature as well is there anything specific that you do well it's very it's so nice sitting here in these beautiful gardens. Um, I find it very, very difficult being in cities. Mm. They are not the place that I'm most comfortable in. I'm constantly not understanding how they work with so much concrete. I live, I mean, I actually do live here now. I keep saying I, I, would, I live in California as well, where I've lived for 26 years. And the Pacific Ocean is like my lover, you know, really specifically and I surf and I swim a lot um so nature is always what brings me back but it's interesting being in a city going well how do you do that here I go to Hyde Park a lot yeah. and I go to Hampstead Heath and I go and swim in the ponds and you know I sort of swim it's really interesting swimming in the ponds in Hampstead Heath I love it I do love it too I love how everybody just strips off and then jumps in but there's this it's also very it's very different swimming in, in unsalted water. Like you swim low in the water and I always want to swim quite fast and I get quite cross looks from the ladies who I splash. <laughs> so I try and go early, but they always show up early as well. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They absolutely do. You splash away, it's fine. It's in your eyes <laughs> to splash away. Why did you move to London if... I mean, yes, there are these parks and there are these ponds, but it's it's a big city. Yeah, uh, it was because uh, during COVID, the schools never opened again in 2020. Uh, and my son, by July, had just lost his mind with Zoom school. And he came and said, is there any way that we can go to London? I can just go to the local school with my cousins. I think because so many people had moved out of London during COVID, there were spaces in these schools, so... We came and then when my mum died, we stayed and I went and showed him the school that I went to, really as a function of my grief, to try and find something of her there. 
and I showed him around in a very informal way and at the end of it he was like please can I go here mm. um, this book explores the restlessness of life which I feel your your son is sort of tapped into yeah. if it's not if it's not working out, doing this, doing this on Zoom, doing this virtually, I'm going to need to get out. I'm going to need to spread my wings. And that metaphor um, proliferates throughout this book. You know, birds and humans have a propensity for flight mm. or lack thereof. It deals with that as well. How do you spread your wings? Do you feel like your wings <laughs> are spread? No, I feel like they're a bit clipped, as a matter of fact, mm. right now. What's so interesting is that having been someone for whom freedom was the... It was everything, like, it was only ever me in charge. I never got married. I was, my job was my relationship. I was always free and flying from here and there. And then when I had Henry and it became this choice to, to be unfree, but it was wonderful. And now Henry's the free one. And Henry is, is sort of describing his flight. And I'm underwriting that which I really do think is, again, what mothers do. You know, you let go and you keep letting go and you sort of switch places in a way. So I'm trying to figure out how this clipped feeling, how I can turn that into freedom because I know there's a way. And I think maybe I just have to find a place. It's just a long drive. I think I've just got to start driving to Dorset and surfing, which is what I just said to my publisher. I think I've just got to start doing it in a different way and start thinking, well, it's not on your doorstep. You have to go and, you have to go and create it. Yeah. But there's no one I would swap freedom with more than my kid. He's allowed to fly. Yeah. And he will, and he is. I will be the wind beneath his wings. Oh. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Look, you're all thinking it. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany is someone who is very matter-of-fact um, and distant as well, which often means she doesn't speak out um, when she should, for instance, when her husband is more concerned about the birds than his wife who has lost a child. Um, you're known for being outspoken. You don't mince your words, um, as we've very gratefully heard today. Um, how important has this been throughout your career and also throughout your life more generally? Well, I tell you what, I really, really don't like the word outspoken because okay. I think it gets applied to women. I have never heard a man be Correct. called outspoken. And it also begs the question, well, what is inspoken? Like, what is the obverse of that? When women speak up, it is sort of, it's underlined and it's in italics as opposed to it being part of a larger conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and there are no such you know, font vagaries attached to dudes. They just, they just aren't. I've always just spoken about life the way I saw it, and I've definitely paid the price for that, but I've always been, um, I've never understood it, and maybe now in this kind of, you know, the crone stage of life. <laughs> maybe just I give a shit less, but I kind of feel like I always felt like this. I still feel like I did when I was 15, which is, um, it really hurts to be taken to task for speaking up about stuff, but it's never really seemed to stop me. Yeah. And I think everyone has, everyone has their particular hill on which they, they have to become comfortable with dying on. And if you don't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you because we're not here for very long mm. and keeping quiet just doesn't 
seem to be an, um, something that we should do. We shouldn't. <laughs> and I feel like we're getting to a place where the word outspoken, hopefully we can use it less. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying it ever again. Great. I'm not saying it Me ever again. Me neither. Great. Yeah. We and just you've speak. got all your life as well, and you're a lot younger, so how amazing. You're now freed from the shackles of that fucking word. Of the word, and that's it, because the truth is I've been speaking for a long time. Exactly. I've been saying the thing. And you're not going to stop. And I'm not going to stop. Yeah. And none of us are going to stop. Um, if you had to, this is hard, if you had to choose one book from your list as a favourite, Minnie, <laughs> which one would it be and why? Oh, that's so mean. Mm. Do you know, because she was exactly my age when she died, and I felt her when I was a child, and I still feel her now, it would be wise children. Okay. I'm going to open the floor uh, to anyone who has any questions for Minnie. Hi. Hello there. Um, I just wanted to ask Mimi um, if she was able to give three bits of advice to a younger version of herself based on what she's been through already, what would they be? They would be... It doesn't all have to happen so fast. And it's actually fine if none of it happens the way you think it's supposed to happen with your young brain. Like, let the vessel be different that your life arrives in. Like, don't get so attached to how everything has to show up. And then um, I would give her a list of men to avoid. <laughs> like, you don't, you're not going to learn anything except what a fucking waste of time that was. Here's a list. I would love to give her that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I have a question, Min. Um, with the stories in your book, how did you choose which ones to keep? Because I, after reading it, I felt, well, I listened to the audio book, which is incredible, but how did you decide which stories to keep and put in, because I had a feeling there were probably lots and lots more that you could have put in. Yeah, there were. There were lots more. Um, it was really, you know, the book was actually meant to be longer, but mum died in the middle of it, and it just derailed the whole process. Like, for, for almost three months, like, all I could write about was her dying, like, the actual 14 days from beginning to end. And it was just like this terrible meditation that I just had to get up every day and keep doing. And I, I felt the stories fall by the wayside, but I just, there was nothing else I could do. And when I came out of that, um, I was so desperate to meet the deadline that was Mother's Day, that had always been Mother's Day, like, which was set by the American publisher. And it was really weird. I was just obsessed with it then, the book coming out then. Um, I knew the only thing I could do was to make the book shorter. So that did part of the job. But it was the other way like, of choosing the stories. It was really, like I've told parts of those stories since they happened. And I've, you know, as an actor, you know what stories connect with people. Like I've seen just for 
at dinners or whenever or around the campfire or whatever of what have made people laugh and what people like and what is interesting and maybe was up for interrogating further. So I had a pretty clear idea um, of what I wanted to tell. There were lots of stories that I started telling and, and then realised that I absolutely loathe the people I was writing about and just didn't want to give them any airtime. You know, it's like, oh, not immortalising you, for you fucker. So I really threw a lot of things out based on beginning to write. Any more questions? <laughs> yes. Yes, hello. Hi, it's Shelley. Hi. I just wanted to ask, <coughs> we've talked about your favourite books, um, but music is obviously a big passion as well. Do you have an artist or an album or a few of them that feel like they've kind of formed a bit of a soundtrack to your life as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, probably like, like Hotter Than July, the Stevie Wonder record, um, Harvest by Neil Young, Blood on the Tracks, Dylan, um, Blue, Joni Mitchell, and then um, I can't remember the name of the record, but that Everything But the Girl record. Like, I was a massive Tracy Thorne fan growing up. Like, that was, she was really, I don't know why, that was so, I can't remember the name of that record, but, um, and then Massive Attacks, first record was really huge as well. Thank you so much. And Minnie, just from, from myself and the whole podcast team um, and everyone at the Women's Prize, thank you. This has been a really, really wonderful way to spend an afternoon. Uh, Minnie, thank you. Yay. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, ladies, gentlemen. I'm Vic Hope, and you've been listening to a very special live episode of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Please rate and review this podcast. It is the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. The Women's Prize for Fiction podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. They barely know each other, but they all know Jamie Lawrence. They know what he's guilty of and that something must be done. Payday, the top 10 best-selling debut novel by Celia Walden. Clever, compelling and chillingly plausible, says the Daily Mail. A runaway train ride of a thriller, says The Sun. A fast-paced psychological thriller, I adored it. Gillian McAllister, author of That Night. Payday by Celia Walden. Out now in paperback.